0: hey everyone welcome back to the 50th episode of the julie laro show wow i can't believe i'm saying that we're already here at 50 i started the show back in early august and i'm really grateful and thank you so much to you the listeners for your support for your ideas for your guest suggestions and listening week after week i've had a lot of fun so far building this and we're just getting started so thank you so much And if you're new here, welcome. Uh, It's great to have you along for the journey. And for those who have been enjoying the show, uh, if you don't mind, please leave a review or a rating or send me a note. You can find me on social media. I do listen to your ideas and suggestions. So thank you. Keep those coming. Let's introduce our guest today. I'm really excited to have Cullen Roche. He is the CIO of Discipline Funds and the author of Pragmatic Capitalism. It's a great book and also an amazing blog. I've been reading it for many, many years. On this episode, we talk about the macroeconomy and housing, which is the risk that is keeping Cullen up at night. I really enjoyed this conversation with Cullen and hope you do too. Helen Roche, CIO of Disciplined Funds and the author of Pragmatic Capitalism. It is so great to welcome you to the Julia LaRoche Show. Great great to have you on, Colin, and great to see you again.
1: Hey, Julia. Great to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have you on. And um, gosh, we've probably known each other for probably well over a decade at this point back when... I was writing for business insider and we were syndicating a lot of your content back then. Um, so it's really nice to have you on. And, um, I was thinking maybe we could start Cullen with a bit about your background because frankly, I actually don't know that much about like how you got into the business. What's kind Mm -hmm. of your story.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. I actually, I came up, uh, out of college, so started working at Merrill Lynch and was kind of working for like an old school, like, you know, slinging stocks and bonds. And really, I don't know, in a lot of ways, like coming out of college, I saw kind of the worst of the financial services industry in that I actually, my very first job was selling insurance. So we were selling like really in like a bucket room with like a hundred guys right out of college and we were hitting phone books. So this was like pretty old school. And, you know, we're selling like long-term care insurance and whole life insurance. Like, you know, it, a lot of this was, you know, really, really bad products that people did not ever need in their whole life. And so I I, I hated the insurance stuff, but was able to transition into um, the stocks and bonds, which, you know, the financial markets were super interesting to me. So I always, always had this sort of fascination with them and I... I basically saw that, though, from, you know, the perspective of like we were really slinging stocks and bonds to people like, you know, super high commissions and a lot of the stuff now that has become, you know, pretty critiqued broadly. And it was weird being young back then because I I was basically you know kind of learning about a lot of the more diversified i think kind of like forward looking products that people were starting to sell at that point which was basically you know index funds and ETFs and so i was really you know intrigued by things like a lot of the new back then it was the ishares basically they dominated the whole ETF space and so um it's interesting like my career now like we run an ETF and it's interesting like the my career's kind of come like full circle where I came in selling like very high fee non-diversified asset allocations and now I you know I came up and learned about low cost ETFs and the importance of you know diversification and and owning a broad you know low cost portfolio that's tax and fee efficient and now you know my company is built basically around those types of products and so I've kind of come full circle from you know, slinging high fee stocks and bonds to now doing nothing but basically low cost ETFs. And I'm my focus is really it's become more and more uh, financial planning based, but really behavior based. I am sort of hyper vigilant about trying to train people to stay the course essentially and building portfolios that help them remain really behaviorally comfortable. Through all the sort of uncertainties that we all encounter across our financial lives.
0: Yeah. I really like that career arc. And um, there are a lot of things that I'm, I want to pull out there and explore a bit. Okay. So you're literally like pounding the phone books, working phones back that. Don't take a, like, you don't seem like that. I mean, you don't seem like that. No, I was terrible anything. at you it. I was so no, 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 bad no, no, no. at it. I was saying it. you don't seem that old. Like, I was like, I kind of think of it as like an old school Wall Street kind of thing. Oh. And then maybe it was like the tail end of that. Yeah, um,
1: it really was. It was kind of like, I came into the business, you know, the, er- this was the early 2000s. So like, you know, the internet was still not having a big impact on, you know, financial services, I don't think. So the the sort of data transmission that we're all so used to and accustomed to now, like that was kind of just becoming a thing. Like I remember when we, when I first moved into our uh, office at Merrill Lynch there, they were just, so it was funny. My first few trades at Merrill, I wrote on a paper ticket. So they were still doing paper tickets back then, submitting them to the trade room at the end of the day. You know, and we were just updating everything to like an electronic system. So it was, I was kind of like right on the cusp of seeing like the really old school version of Wall Street. And then, but really like learning and trying to think, you know, be forward looking enough to sort of see where all
0: this was going. Yeah. Okay. Um, Another follow on to like working the phones back then. I mean, I don't know. People probably don't do that anymore. Um, did you learn any like sort of like skills from that where you're like, yeah, I can like pick up the phone and like call or do any, I mean, I imagine there's gotta be a bit of like some confidence that gets built up doing that or something. I'm, I'm a bit more, even though I host this podcast, I'm a bit more shy, I guess, when it comes to those things. Like do you you learn things like that getting over that kind of fear of doing that?
1: Yeah. You know, it was, there were a lot of things that I learned that were useful because I was, I mean, back then I, I would still argue that I'm not, a good salesperson, especially like, I think my biggest problem back then was that like, I'm more of a, um, like people who have read my work probably know I'm like at least somewhat analytical. I really dig into like the details of how things work. And like, I'm kind of obsessive compulsive about understanding, you know, when you buy stocks and bonds, I want people to understand what those things are. Like, don't think of them as just like, you know, get rich quick products. Like you have to understand the structure of the product so that you can understand the way that it functions so that you can allocate it appropriately. And then, you know, understand what it's actually going to do for you and you and your portfolio over time. But, you know, it was interesting back then, like I was really digging into things like annuities and whole life insurance. And I'm going to my bosses and I'm being like, you know, do these things actually do this because I'm running the numbers and like this doesn't seem to actually function the way we're selling it. And so it kind of seems like, you know, a BS story that we're pitching to people. And so, you know, I had this kind of problem where like I was really analytical looking at these things, almost more like, a, you know, the way I've always sort of thought of this is like there's two ways to – to sell a car. You can be the guy that just sells the car and knows nothing about it, or you can be an engineer and you can actually understand the car and sell the car to people in a way based on their needs so that, you know, Hey, this is a car that you need because you need these safety features. You have no desire to drive hundred miles an hour. So, you know, buy the, you know, buy the Camry. It's safe. Your family fits in. It, it'll get you from point A to point B, as opposed to a lot of the financial services business, especially back then was basically like, You know, hey, here's a Ferrari. I have no idea how this thing works, but it's beautiful and I can sell it to you. And I'm gonna make you buy it and it's gonna cost you an arm and a leg, and it's not gonna be appropriate for you at all, but you know, it'll it'll help me get rich because you're gonna, you know, pay an arm and a leg for you know through commissions and whatnot. And so I struggled with that, but it I think going through that whole process, I I not only learned a lot about sales, you know, and kind of just exposing yourself and being kind of vulnerable, because that's, you know, 99.5% of the time, people are just saying, you know, F you stop calling me, you know, that's pretty much what every phone call is like. And so you kind of, I think, learn a lot about yourself through going through that process and just learning to, you know be somewhat vulnerable and, and you know, ultimately, I mean, a lot of life is like just being able to sell yourself to other people. Right. So it was kind of cool going through that whole process and, and learning, you know, a lot about myself, not just in terms of like realizing I'm a bad salesman, but, but at least learning some of the salesy skills that I think have, you know, sort of helped me improve in a lot of other facets.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. I want to shift topics and um, bring this up because I, I did read your book, um, Pragmatic Capitalism, um, and you know you talk about macro um, and the macro economy mattering more than ever. I'm paraphrasing here, but I was hoping maybe we can kind of start there uh, with your macro view today. What is the big picture for you? Um, we're about to wrap up the first month of 2023. A lot of folks were certainly pessimistic at the end of the year what's the macro outlook for you?
1: Yeah. So I, I focused a lot on the big picture and, you know, macro, basically my, my view of the world really is that I kind of am a big believer that if you, if you know the direction of the current, you just don't have to be a great swimmer. You don't have to, you know, anyone can look like a pretty good swimmer if they know the direction of the current there. So that to me is much more important than having a micro focus, you know? So, and I think that a lot of people get this backwards. I go into this a little bit in the book, the difference between saving and investing, where I think a lot of people have this focus on the micro and not just corporations, but microcosms of the macro economy. And to me, it's much more important to just get the, you get the big picture trends, right? And, you know, you'll do okay over time and certainly better than you probably would if you were, you know, getting all the little stuff wrong in the context of of, you know, having no perception of the of the macro. So, you know, where are we right now? I mean, it's been the last few years have been just crazy. I mean, I don't know if anybody really knows where we are cuz we're still sort of digesting the COVID boom. So, you had this sort of, you know, almost like an irrational big boom because during COVID, you know, the government went crazy with all the stimulus. And then there were all these weird supply shocks, and everybody was sitting around at home, you know, with nothing to do. And so I think a lot of people started just sort of trading stocks and bonds and doing silly stuff. And now we're kind of on the back end of that, where the government has peeled a lot of things back, the Fed is really trying to slow things down, get a, you know, get a hold on inflation. And so my view, basically, right now is that we're kind of, you know digesting a lot of this almost like we ate a huge meal and now we're going through the process of just digesting that meal and you know it's it, it's still super uncertain about where we're headed going forward because i think the big uncertainty is that the fed has moved so far so fast that it's created a lot of uncertainty in especially the housing market. I mean, there's a lot of uh, macro research on how important the the housing market is to the economy. A lot of economists actually argue that the, especially the US economy basically is a housing economy. And so when the when the housing market slows down a lot like it is right now, you know, how does that filter through to everything else? And it's still really up in the air whether this, you know, does this environment look More like a a 2008 type of slowdown? Is it more like a 2002-ish type of long, drawn-out sort of slowdown that, you know, nothing really crashes, but things just kind of persistently adjust lower? Um, I'm probably more in that camp. Um, that this looks a lot more like a 2002 kind of multi-year drawn-out type of slowdown, where we're just digesting a huge boom, kind of like the you know the late 90s created a big boom. Um, but there's still this sort of outlier risk that uh, that there's like a you know a credit event lurking, a sort of a 2008 style event. It's a you know probably a you know a big outlier um you know i wouldn't i wouldn't bet a lot of money on something like that but it, it, the the disconcerting thing the thing that if something keeps me up at night i think it's that you know what happens with housing in the next 2 or 3 years cuz you could ride you could have ridden through all of basically 2006 2007 saying oh the fed has raised rates a ton they've been super aggressive getting inflation under control and look everything's fine and then 2008 happened and so you know, not that we're on the cusp of something like that, but I think it would be at least, um, you know, somewhat arrogant to discount that sort of a, a decline in housing having big impacts. Um, you know, at least not being a risk.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I want let's explore that a little bit further. The housing part of the um, equation here. Um, can you help folks kind of walk through like what you're paying attention to in this space? Um, have you kind of built yeah. a thesis on how you, I mean, prob- these are all like their probabilities, like how you think it might play out. What are you thinking yeah. about there? Well,
1: so the the thing is there is that the, the housing market and all the related sectors are, they're like 30% of gross domestic products. So they are a huge amount of of economic growth basically and more importantly the housing sector is 75% of household debt so it's really like the backbone of everything that the credit market is structured around and so when the fed moves really aggressively they raise interest rates from you know 0 to 5 basically inside of like an 18 month period and mortgage rates go from you know 3 to 7% at the high. They're back down to like 6-ish right now, but they've basically doubled. And so the cost of everything related to housing has exploded. And so the a monthly mortgage right now is essentially like the, the old rule of thumb used to be that you want to pay like roughly like 25% of your household income should be to shelter. And right now the cost of a mortgage has driven that up to basically over like 40%. So it's a it's it's diverting a large amount of disposable income towards just shelter. And you know, on the one hand, there's an argument to be made that maybe we're in this new paradigm where people went through COVID and realized, well, housing. That your house is just super important. It's more important than it's ever been now because people work from home increasingly. And so, you know, maybe all of this makes perfectly good sense. Um, the the alternative scenario is well, house prices boomed 40% during COVID. And now we're starting to see sort of an interesting thing transpire here where almost I don't want to say all prices, but a lot of prices are adjusting basically back to where they were before COVID. So we're seeing this with like Global shipping rates and, you know, used cars are starting to really collapse fast. And there's a lot of things in the economy that are just kind of reverting back to where they were pre-COVID. And I think that the the outlier scenario that worries me is if house prices fall by 25%, all we're back to is where we were in 2020. So, but 25% is a very, very significant decline in house prices. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. But again, I think it would be kind of arrogant to discount it entirely. And so in the scenario where something like that happens, where we just go back to where we were in 2020, which, you know, a lot of people were arguing that housing was out of control back then, um, you know, you go back to that price level, what does that do to credit markets and, you know, household balance sheets and everything? And does that kind of create this, um, you know, this sort of feedback loop where, you know, maybe you don't get a 2008, but you get, you get a pretty sharp downturn in the economy and the financial markets that, you know, gets, um, it gets a little hairy at points just because housing is such a central, you know, asset in the, in the macro economy.
0: Okay. This, this is a very interesting conversation. Um, Okay. Because of the implications of what it could mean. Cause I'm thinking like kind of selfish and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to buy a house in the next, I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible time to buy, but like, you know, I'd like to, and like call it like just over an, a year, I would love to like buy a house. Right. But mm-hmm. for someone like me, I might be like, yeah, it will be great if they prices would come back down before I buy to, you know, 2020 levels or, because maybe it was out of control, but the implications of a pullback like that, like, how does that ripple through like is i would love to just kind of hear a bit more
1: i mean in the long run it it's not a big deal you know in the but in the short run i think that and this is one of the interesting things that's kind of happened to the financial system in the last especially the last 20 to 30 years is that housing has become a much bigger component of the broader economy and it's become a much more speculative asset so the housing market in a lot of ways house prices they almost look more like stocks than they ever did. I mean, house prices historically didn't really move very much. Like going into 2008, you know, one of the things that really contributed to 2008 was that basically every analyst under the sun said house prices never fall 20 to 30%. It does not happen. And so it's interesting going forward and like looking at this, that has housing become a much more speculative asset here where, it does, it's much more perceptible or susceptible, sorry, to these sort of big booms and busts where, you know, you can have a big COVID boom of 40% and then the the price of it can fall 25%. And what this does is it adds to a lot of near-term volatility. In the long run, it probably, you know, is not that unusual looking, you know, it's like, um it, like the stock market, for instance, Uh, I always like to describe the stock market as basically being like a multi-decade instrument. If you look at that thing over a multi-decade period, well, it doesn't look like it does very much. Like the chart just goes from the bottom left to the top right, you know, and it's pretty stable looking. But when you zoom in and you look at that thing and what it does, you know, it's hyper volatile on a daily minute by minute, monthly basis. And so, you know, the extent to which housing starts to look more like that is interesting going forward because it's just, you know, because it's such a big asset inside of especially household balance sheets. And so, you know, I don't know. I, it's, um, it's super interesting to think about just because it, it's sort of a function of this like financialization of the economy where we, we do seem to increasingly be producing less, um, Real stuff and increasingly producing things that sort of financialize the real stuff. And then we're trading the financialized stuff and creating a lot more volatility because a lot of that financialized stuff has become so much more essential to our balance sheet. So, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't put the odds of a big decline in housing as being very high, but it's definitely one of the more interesting things to me to think about with the way the macroeconomy is changing and the way that this sort of financialization of housing has made it potentially a much more volatile asset class going forward.
0: Yeah. This is such an interesting conversation. I'm so glad to have you on because I feel like I'm learning a lot from this. Okay. Um, One more follow-on to housing. Because in your book, um, you have a chapter on like these kind of myths. And Mm -hmm. one of the myths uh, was... I guess a myth in investing is that your house is a great investment. Do you still yeah. um do you still believe that is a myth that your house is a great investment?
1: Um, you know, it's weird because I mean personally, like I I bought my house at a, a lucky time. We did a big remodel and then we kind of timed it so lucky that you know I dodged the the big commodity boom. And so for me, it's ironic that I wrote a chapter on that because my house financially has ended up being a great investment. (laughs) Um, But I think here's the interesting thing. So even using my example, I think the thing that a lot of people don't account for when they buy a house is there's a lot of sort of external costs that people, I think, don't account for. So people tend to, when they think of their house as an investment, they tend to remember the price they bought it at and the price they sold it at. And what they don't actually quantify along the way is all of the added costs along the way. So they don't account for, you know, they usually don't strip out like their mortgage and the taxes. And, you know, for me, like the crazy thing with our house was that when we remodeled it, I ended up, um, we basically, we got pregnant halfway through it. And so I got like hyper involved in the actual construction and ended up building a lot of the house myself because, Uh, we were just under the gun. And the cost of doing that for me personally was like unquantifiable because it just, I mean, I nearly chopped my head off three or four times, like for real, almost like, you know, decapitated myself, cutting down trees and, you know, using tools that I had no business using. And um, it's amazing that I got through the whole experience unscathed, but there are all these sort of external costs that people don't fully account for that when you look at things for instance like a low cost ETF or index fund you know the the expense ratio of that thing is very easy to quantify you can actually look at the cost you bought that thing at and you you know if you have a sales price on it you can quantify the cost on it and they're generally you know especially today they're super low whereas with a house it has all these added costs of you know things like you know, maintenance and gardening and things break. I mean, that's the thing about a house is that a house is basically a depreciating asset, a big block of wood that's falling apart on a really valuable piece of land. But all that structure is constantly falling apart all through the years. And I think when people quantify the value or the return on investment that they have from their house, they don't fully account for all that stuff. And I think when you actually back all that stuff out, um, you know, there was an interesting study from Thornburg investments, uh, I think five, to 10 years ago that talked about this, the real, real return of something like housing. And that's the inflation adjusted real cost adjusted, uh, return. And they basically said it was zero because the, the, after you back out inflation and the cost of maintenance and everything, your house actually ends up being a much lower return instrument than a lot of people think. So, you know, I don't it's not that I think that a house can't be a good investment. It's that um, I think I'm a big believer that most people should not buy a house trying to make money on it. So, you know, don't get into like the house flipping game thinking that, you know, real estate is something that you're just going to turn over quick money on it. To me, a house really should be just a place where you want to live. And if it gives you some financial freedom through, you know, whether it's the, you know, the freedom from, you know, a, a relatively high rent, or, you know, for me, the the freedom of owning the house was basically that, you know, I drove a bulldozer through my house that, you know, being able to do things like that, that you can't do when you're renting, you know, there's a certain sense of freedom and, and return on investment there that um, is sort of liberating. So, it depends. I don't want to give people the impression that like they shouldn't buy a house or shouldn't think that they can make money on it. But um, owning a house is a lot more of a pain in the butt than people, I think, you know, tend to make it out to be.
0: At least you figured it out though. Um, and you didn't cut your head off. So that is good news. Um, <laughs> well, I figured right. out that
1: I never want to remodel a house again, if that's what you mean. So
0: yeah, well, yeah, that too. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're services for that too. Yeah.
1: Um
0: Okay. I want to shift a little bit more because you did put out your 2023 outlook and um you said that 2023 was going to be the year of disinflation. Can we walk through your thesis there?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of related to what I was talking about before where you had these unusual drivers of inflation during the boom the 2020 2021 boom where the government was you know spending a lot of money and stimulating the economy to basically try to you know ride out covid and you had the coinciding supply chain shocks that these two factors it's hard to quantify which was more important or you know how much each contributed to everything along the way but i think it's safe to say at this point that both were very important contributing factors so but where we are now basically is we're kind of on the the opposite side of um of everything there where the government now is peeling back the stimulus in a huge way and the fed is being very aggressive with you know their policy response and at the same time, supply chains have started to, to normalize to a large degree, and so, you know, the what we're basically seeing now is that in the long run, the inflation is ending up to look somewhat, you know, with the way the Fed described as transitory. Even though I kind of described at the time that that was a you know kind of a, a bad way of describing what was going to happen with inflation, but the point is, is that. A a disinflation is a falling rate of positive inflation. So, typically, historically, inflation averages like three percent growth per year. So, it's always kind of ticking up. But if you were to see a decline to say two percent from three percent, we call that a disinflation. So, it's a falling rate of positive change, basically. A deflation is an actual negative rate of change, where if you know, in two thousand and eight, we briefly saw inflation actually go negative and that's super super unusual so i don't see us going there but um i do see us we basically peaked we really peaked last january of last year that's where core uh, personal consumption expenditures inflation peaked and it kind of stayed kind of highish and you know now we're kind of on the tail end of that where i think that going forward The big adjustments going going forward are are yet to come where we're going to see, for instance, once once we move into really like the springtime here this year, you're going to start to see the year over year comparisons um, are really going to start to look a lot lower because really in large part because of the you know, the the main driver there was for the commodity boom. It was the, the war in the Ukraine. And so now we're going to get a year over year comparison there where inflation kind of naturally moderates just because you had a big price boom. And so the year over year numbers are going to look low on a relative basis, and that's going to filter through to inflation. And it should, I think, persist through the year because the year over year comps going all the way through this year compared to last year are still going to look relatively low compared to where we were. So That's what I mean when I say a year of disinflation. The interesting thing from the Fed's perspective and where interest rates are is that, so, you know, core PCE is something around 5% right now. That's still way too high for the Fed. The Fed wants that number at 2% or lower. And so I think that we're going to moderate this year. We're not going to moderate, though, I think as fast as the Fed would like. And so- You know, I think the only scenario where we moderate really quickly is if you do end up getting that big, big decline in the housing sector and really something that looks a lot scarier or something more akin to a 2008. Like I said, that's, I think, a pretty low probability outcome, but not one that I would discount entirely. I think the much more likely scenario is we kind of tick lower the economy is just sort of slow and sluggish throughout the year. And we moderate down to like 3% inflation by the end of the year. But the the kicker there is that the fed is going to remain aggressive all through the year, because on a, on a relative basis compared to their target rate of 2%, 3%, even if we get there, it's still way too high for them.
0: Okay. Um, there's a bunch of things I want to explore. Um, you do a really nice job. Like when you explain things, like I was funny, I was going to ask you, I was going to say like, how do I know the difference or how can I discern if it's disinflation or deflation? Like you're talking about, it's a falling rate of positive change for disinflation and a negative rate of change for deflation. But like, yeah, is there a way to like if, if when it's happening? Like you're, you could say, okay, that it, the way it's moving, that makes more sense. It's it's disinflation. How do I Yeah, how do I you spot? could kind of
1: think of, um, I mean, think of it like the way the stock market changes. So the stock market going up, you could call it, you know, asset inflation if you want. And when the stock market declines, um, you know, let's say comparing it on a year over year basis, you could say that, you know, the the stock market, um, if it goes from, you know, $100 to $200, and then, you know, down to 150 dollars, well, on a year over year basis, you could still have a positive rate of change. So you have positive asset price inflation, but compared to the peak, you have a disinflation. So it, it depends on the time period over which you're comparing these things because in the long run, inflation pretty much is always going up um, for lots of different reasons. But you know these more short-term perspectives, you get the the rate of change, can decline and that's what economists call a disinflation.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, so you were also saying like your your um your guess is that core PCE will likely end a year around three percent, but you point out that that's higher than the Fed's two percent target. You also know like that you expect the economy will be slow and sluggish, but the Fed will remain aggressive. Um mm-hmm. can the Fed like I wanna hear a bit more on like the Fed remaining aggressive, what what that could mean. And I don't know if this is even like an intelligent question to ask, but is it possible that they could remain too aggressive where we could actually like overshoot and like go even yeah. like lower? Is that a real possibility? I'm just thinking out loud. Like yeah, I know no, I'm not an expert.
1: So that's that, that's sort of you know my worry. It has been my worry. They've moved so far so fast, they've never moved as fast as they have here. So you know to to me i think the the way that i've kind of thought about the last few years was i i basically thought that with the peeling back the fiscal stimulus and the normalization in supply chains i thought that inflation was if you were patient enough inflation was going to come down no matter what so you know the what the Fed got very worried about and has been very worried about is that there's something more persistent going on, that this is more like a 1970 scenario. And what happened in the 70s basically was that you got like a wage price spiral, which basically meant that inflation became like sort of self-reinforcing. And throughout all of the decade there, you had a, a rising rate of change in inflation. And that is hugely damaging. I mean, imagine if we had, you know, 8 nine, ten 9 10% Inflation for an entire decade, and so a lot of the economists at the Fed were very—they've been very hyper worried about this being a return of the 1970s. Um, I've kind of been saying all along that I didn't ever think that was a big risk, um, you know, and I hope I'm—I hope I'm right about that because ten years of double-digit inflation is a disaster. But you know, from their perspective, they were very worried about this persistent high inflation. And so I think that, you know, they're still of that mindset and that creates the risk that you talk about where they've, they've moved from basically zero to 5%. And the biggie there is that they've, they've really taken a wrecking ball to the housing market and, what are the downside risks to that and is there a chance that as we kind of move through this year and the next year does the unemployment rate for instance start to tick up a lot faster than they had hoped for because the economy just is a lot more sluggish than they expected and does that force them at some point to kind of backpedal on uh, a lot of what they've done in the last year you know to kind of make up for you know kind of being too aggressive so it's i don't know it's easy to sort of critique them in retrospect i mean they they whiffed on the on the inflation in a big way last year and i think they're trying to make sure that they don't repeat that mistake but the weird thing about not trying to repeat that mistake is do you do you risk then moving too far in the opposite direction where then you remain way too tight for too long. You really crush the housing market in a way that causes things to remain sluggish for a lot longer than expected. And then that filters through to everything else. And the Fed ends up having to, for instance, say, move interest rates back down to like you know, two to three percent to bring the housing market back into sort of an equilibrium where things can then stabilize again. and And I think that's still a that that's still a really meaningful risk uh, going forward,
0: yeah, meaningful risk. Go ahead. You brought up um, that they whiffed on uh, inflation. That's when they're saying it was transitory. And it's like, yeah. It makes me wonder, like, how, maybe it's not even worth even bringing up, like, how, how how did they do that? Like, how did they whiff? It it can't, they can't. I just feel like they're people who were warning on it. I mean, Larry Summers was definitely one of them warning uh, about inflation. It just makes me wonder, like, aren't they supposed to be like some of the smartest folks? Like, how did they whiff on it? I just don't, I don't know. You know,
1: it's, I don't know. Like I said, it's really easy to critique them because the being, I think, being a Fed chief or being a member of the you know the Fed is really hard in that you're beholden to Congress. And so I think when you when you do something with the interest rates, you have to be able to justify why you're doing it. And so they're very data dependent, and a lot of the data they look at is lagging naturally. And so you know i think a lot of the stuff they were looking at you know for instance back then in 2020 and 2021 they wanted to see the unemployment rate drop to below 4% before they started to aggressively raise rates and that was kind of the the trigger point for them where they said okay the economy has recovered from the covid recession and that's the that's the number where we can confirm that where we can actually tell people the, we've accomplished our job of stimulating the economy during the COVID recession. The problem with that was that a lot of the, the employment data is lagging. And so they waited until unemployment was really low. And by that point, inflation had started to already spike. And so they kind of had to play catch up. And that's a big part of the reason why they moved so fast in the last 12 months is they're, they were playing catch up on waiting for this data. And so it's weird to think that, you know, they're still looking at, they're still data dependent. So they're still relying on the same basic, you know, approach to, to understanding inflation going forward. And so it's weird to sort of think, well, if they're looking at lagging data and they're data dependent, then, you know, does that exacerbate the risk that they're going to make the same mistake in the opposite direction, you know, going forward. And so, So far it looks pretty good. I mean, inflation's coming down. It seems to, you know, we seem to be skirting the 1970 scenario. Um, but, um, you know, the, the argument about soft landing versus hard landing is still very much up in the air.
0: Yeah. Very much up in the air. Okay. I want to talk about markets with you too. Um, what I, I don't know like where to start here. Like maybe, Okay, here's a way oh here's a place to start. Um, I've had conversations in recent weeks where, you know, folks who are probably more of like the value um investing style. Um, they've commented about like the rising interest rate environment being good for like the value investing coming back mm-hmm. into favor. I guess like maybe it's let's start with like the value versus growth. Like what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts there in that space? Um yeah. what do you think?
1: yeah, this one's interesting. I mean, I'm not so a lot of um one of the hot trends in the last sort of ten years has been this factor investing approach. You know, so factor investing is like these these factors that explain some level of outperformance. And so things like small cap stocks, momentum, value is a classic one. Um these things tend to show some persistent signs of outperformance in the long run where investors can, you know, buy value stocks and generate, you know, a little bit of a, of a a risk adjusted premium relative to buying something like the S&P 500. I think this stuff is really tricky to me. Factor investing is basically another form of stock picking. And I'm, I don't know, I'm much more of a John Bogle adherent where I sort of like Bogle was famous for saying, you know, buy the haystack, don't worry about the needles. And to me that that's always kind of resonated because then you don't have to worry about trying to time whether you own value or growth at certain times. You can just, if you buy something like the S and P 500 or the total market, uh, you own both. And so you'll have exposure to, you know, bull and bear markets in both, but you don't have to try to time which one is doing better at certain times. And so, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I mean, I'm probably more of a value investor in the sense that like, especially now, I think that you know there's a there's a relevant argument that you know value has underperformed for so long that on a on a relative basis value looks a lot more attractive there's also kind of an interesting like dollar argument interest rate argument involved in all this where it's kind of entangled in inflation where you can argue that during periods of really low and stable inflation growth tends to do really well, whereas during periods of higher, less stable inflation, value does really well because it's the the high growth companies are the ones that tend to suffer more during a a period of greater uncertainty, basically because their design of those companies is that they're, they're higher risk entities, basically. So they tend to become a little more volatile during periods of uncertainty compared to you know, traditional sort of stalwart types of companies that are traditionally thought of as value companies. So we saw this last year where dividend paying stocks and, you know, your traditional sort of value investments did really well compared to anything that was growth. And that was to some degree due to the this inflation effect where inflation creates so much uncertainty that, you know, these these more stable sorts of entities, they just have much more predictable pricing power for the most part. And so, you know, going forward, that that seems like a really, I, I think, persuasive argument um, for how to allocate assets. But to me, I I tend to think that the, you know, at least when I work with clients, I tend to to tell people, you know, don't get too caught up in trying to pick the sectors or factors that are going to do well you know, just buy the, buy the haystack and don't worry too much about, you know, the needles
0: inside of it. I like that. No, buy the haystack. Haystack. Don't worry about the needles. Um, Okay. I want to bring up fixed income with you bonds. Um, Very bad year in 2022, very challenging for folks. Um, How should people think about uh, bonds?
1: It depends on how much stability you need in your portfolio. So, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about the stock market being like a 20-year instrument. Well, you know, the the stock market is something I like to think of the stock market almost like it's a 20-year bond. So, if you hold that thing for 20 years, you should earn something like a 6 to 7% interest rate on average over the course of time. I mean, it's not going to do that every year, of course. It's going to gyrate up and down, but on average, if you hold that thing for a multi-decade period, that's the rate of return that I think is is pretty pretty consistent. And the bond market, on average, is—I mean—a bond aggregate fund, for instance, um, is something closer to like a—you know—it's probably best described as like a six to seven-year instrument. So right now, that instrument is paying four percent. So again, like the stock market. Inside of a one-year period, you know, it'll bounce around and it'll have years like, I mean, last year was really unusual because of the way the Fed was so aggressive. They, you know, they, they, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And so that caused a big, big downturn in bonds. But the weird thing going forward now is that kind of like the way that occurs with the stock market, oftentimes when the stock market goes down a lot, future expected returns actually go up. And so, you know, typically the best time to buy stocks is after they've declined in value substantially. And the same sort of thing happens in the bond market, where when the bond market goes down in value a lot, interest rates go up. So, you know, two years ago, if you owned bonds, you were buying, think of it as a six-year instrument that was paying you, you know, 1% per year. Now you can buy... A you can buy a treasury bill today for 4.8 percent. So the bond market, on average, though, is still a six year instrument, let's say, that's paying you four percent. So the future expected returns of this instrument have actually increased. So now, you know, depending on how much stability you need across time, uh, the stock or the bond market has become much, much more attractive in this environment compared to especially where we were a few years ago. But You know, bonds are really for people that they, you know, if you, I talk about time a lot in my research and, you know, the importance of of understanding time relative to your asset allocation. And to me, I think most people, I think the thing that a lot of people get in trouble with, especially with the stock market, is that they don't understand the time horizon of the stock market. They can't quantify it. And so a lot of people will day trade the stock market or trade it on a monthly or even an annual basis. And those are really short time horizons for an instrument that, by my measurement, is a 20-year instrument. And so when you look at things like stocks versus bonds, I think the nice thing about bonds is that, for instance, a treasury bill is... Basically, a three, six, nine, or twelve month instrument, depending on which one you buy. You can have almost near certainty of principal and return when you buy specific buckets of those things. And the aggregate bond market is really similar. It's a you know a six-year instrument, basically. Long-term treasury bonds, you know, you can go out and buy specific maturities of 10, 20, whatever. But in terms of looking at these things across specific time horizons, it really depends on how much stability you want across time because you know everybody needs stability in the short term. And I think this is one of the things that makes la- like years like last year so difficult is that people don't realize the value of holding a lot of short-term cash and, say, money market funds where they have almost absolute certainty of how much money they have for a certain time horizon. And when you when you allocate into something like, a let's just use a simple example, like a 60-40 stock bond fund, well, you've really created a hybrid of different time horizons there where by my calculations, a 60-40 stock bond fund is basically like a 12-year instrument because you've blended the 20-year instrument with like a six-year instrument. And that on average comes out to something sort of in the middle. But what that doesn't do for you is it doesn't give you any certainty of how much principle you're going to have in especially the near term. So if you're someone who, you know, wants money for a house down payment or you need emergency funds or whatever it might be, let's say in the next two, three, four or five years. Well, owning something like the stock market creates a lot of angst inside of those time horizons. So to me. Bonds are for stability across specific time horizons, and you have to structure your portfolio in a way that is really matching the time horizons to very specific assets, and then being patient and letting the asset do what it's supposed to do.
0: I like that, and I like what the way you explain, like looking at things through the, this this time horizon, and it's such a good reminder too for folks. Um, all right, this is maybe it's a little random, but what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Do you have thoughts there? And if you do, kind I do. Of time horizon? Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Then what kind of, I'm going to add then what kind of time horizon do you have? I, I assume you look at time Yeah. Well, time Bitcoin is
1: weird. So I, I actually, I wrote this paper a few months back called all duration investing. And what I did with that paper was I, I built a sort of a simple model to actually calculate time horizons for all asset classes. You can plug in any asset class, any strategy and Bitcoin comes out to basically like a 90-year instrument in that model. So it's a it's a super long duration, uh, really high risk sort of instrument. And I mean, I think the best argument for owning something like Bitcoin is that it really it it is sort of replacing gold in a portfolio to some degree. It is a a truly decentralized. Um immutable form of currency, basically, where people can own this asset, knowing that no matter what the government does, no matter what's happening in the banking system or whatever, that that money, at least it cannot be manipulated in the same way that a lot of, you know, especially sort of fiat currencies can be. And that, I think, I don't know how compelling of an argument that is in the United States, because you know there's there's certain economies that are just inherently much more robust from a a currency perspective compared to you know say third world sorts of countries but in the developed world i think certainly you know the argument for owning something like bitcoin is a lot less compelling just because we have so many stable assets that you know are much more predictable in terms of their long term returns Whereas I think the the really the most compelling argument for something like Bitcoin is if you live in an Argentina or a Venezuela or sort of a third world country where the government is very unstable and the currency is very unstable, you know something like a Bitcoin is much more compelling in the same sense that owning real assets would be owning real estate or gold or anything that is, you know, not directly correlated to the value of the currency necessarily. So, but it's also, I, I like to really keep this conversation in perspective. So when we look at like the, the value of all of the financial assets in the world, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are less than 1%. So it, it's sort of weird to me how much airtime cryptocurrencies get, only because in the grand scheme of things, they're an incredibly small market relative to things like stocks and bonds. I mean, stocks and bonds are just magnitudes, more important, larger uh, markets. And that's not to say that, you know, cryptocurrency couldn't become a much bigger market, but in the, the current environment, I mean, if you're looking at this thing from like a, a really efficient market hypothesis sort of perspective, and you're you're somebody who says, I just want to own what the market, you know, the basically what the market value of things is right now, Bitcoin is like 1% of your portfolio, if that. So it's in the grand scheme of things, and especially compared to how much press it all gets, um, you know, Bitcoin is a really, really small market. And I think that you know, that, that plays into you know, how much people should actually allocate to it, because we're talking about an instrument that, yeah, it could have a really big outsized positive return for you. But at the same time, it can have a really, you know, detrimental, negative potential return for you as well. So um, that's sort of my my long-winded version of my my view of Bitcoin.
0: Well, I feel like this hour has flown by, Cullen. I've really enjoyed having you on. So I want to pass it back to you. Let folks know where they can find you or read more um, from Pragmatic Capitalism. Um, and also, if you have any parting thoughts for the audience, anything that we didn't cover or touch upon that you'd like to get across, uh, just take the next couple of minutes to do so.
1: Yeah. So, uh, most people know me for my website, Pragmatic Capitalism. The blog is pragcap.com. And, uh, you know, I'm the, the chief investment officer of Discipline Funds. And we, we operate the Discipline Fund ETF, which, like I alluded to earlier, is a, it's a, really a fund that is kind of a 10-year type of instrument it's a stock bond blend uh, a little more dynamic than a 60 40 fund but really designed to help people build sort of a a really tax efficient low-cost globally diversified core holding in a portfolio but really help people sort of stay the course and you know taking that sort of haystack approach and then if you need to build components around it it's great for being able to do that but um you know I If I had one piece of advice for people in an environment like this, it's that I think that going back to that concept of time, and we talk about asset allocation a lot across uh, across assets. And I think what people don't talk about enough is not just diversifying across assets, but really diversifying across time. Because I think that's the thing that gets a lot of people in trouble is when they don't have certainty of their time horizons, they'll... I think, tend to fall into sort of behavioral traps with their asset allocation. They'll start to second-guess stuff. And when you can think of asset allocation as being across specific time horizons rather than just asset classes, I think you end up building a portfolio that's much more sustainable for you because you create certainty across time in a way that you can... You're not going to get certainty in things like Bitcoin and the stock market. They're just not structured that, that way. And so when you can... When you can front load your structure and your portfolio construction in a way where you increase your your certainty across time, I think you improve the way that you're likely to perform because you're likely to remain more confident in the strategy you have rather than I think a lot of people, especially, you know, in the COVID era, were always looking at where the grass is greener and saying, Oh, you know, my neighbor has this, my neighbor got that, uh, my neighbor earned this return. And You know that's the worst way to manage your assets and and manage your financial plan is to constantly be comparing yourself to everybody else because it's going to constantly make you question your own plan. And it's much more likely to create an environment where you find yourself actually making really rational decisions at the worst possible times.
0: I think that's a great way to end this. Cullen Roche, CIO of Discipline Funds and the author of Pragmatic Capitalism, Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot, and I think the audience will too. Thanks again, Helen. Thank Cullen. you,
1: Julia. It's great being here.
0: Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.